And if you would please, let's stand and uh, let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel of John and chapter 8, beginning at verse 48. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 48. The Jews answered him, are you not, are you, are you not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Just as some of a backdrop to... Um, our time this morning, I just want to remind uh, ourselves, if we would please turn to John chapter 20, and um, here we have the key verse in the Gospel of John that really lays out for us what John is seeking to accomplish and um, why he is taking time to reveal to us such a lengthy uh, discourse as Jesus and the Jews have, in particular at the Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in, in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now we've labored over this verse a number of times, but I just want to remind you, it's talking here about John saying, I want to, I'm laying out for you all this evidence, all these things that Jesus did, laying out this evidence so that you will believe. But then, true belief will result in life, is what he's saying here. All right, so you look at verse 31, but these are written, all these stories, all these accounts are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's goal is not belief, ultimately it is life that comes through belief, okay? And so we have evidence upon evidence of who Jesus is. And honestly, uh, some of the hardest passages of scripture in the Gospel of John um, are what we have been going through this past couple of months. John chapter 7 and chapter 8, a long discourse. Jesus wrestling, interacting with the Jews and the leadership, and, and just really this, this, this discourse of question and answer, question and answer, and it can, it can be somewhat tedious and hard for us to kind of stay with it and, and grasp what John is revealing to us by giving us the record of what Jesus is saying and how uh, the Jews are going after him. Um, but it's worth us knowing that this is God's revealed word. And if God has revealed it to us, if he's given it to us, then we need to do the work, of, the hard work of, of laboring through it, right? And, and as a pastor, there's a part of me that's like, oh, okay, you know, he's, he's just hammering the same stuff over and over and over again. And now, God, how, how, how is the congregation going to handle just hearing the same stuff over and over again? And yet, if, if, if it's there for us, we must trust that God has a reason for it being there for us, and we must allow ourselves to hear it once again, because he's building upon certain themes, and he's helping us understand by building on those themes who he really is. 
and what he wants us to do and the end result of that, right? He is Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. He wants us to believe, not a superficial belief, but true, genuine belief. And he, he, you know, he lays that out for us, and John identifies that for us too. And the end result, the end goal, is that we truly would have life. And so this morning, with that backdrop, we want to jump into this last paragraph in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8. And it's the, really the last, I want to say, part of the discourse that Jesus has at the Feast of Tabernacles here. And, um, but I want to begin at the end and kind of set the stage that way. So let's go to John chapter 8 and verse 59. And it says there, so they picked up stones, and these would be the Jews, to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why would the Jews respond to Jesus in such a violent way? Why would they pick up stones to throw at Jesus, the one who is speaking to them as the light of the world? I just remind us of of some of those titles because although we have taken our time to work through these texts, this has been an ongoing conversation he's been having with them. He's declared himself to be the light of the world. The light of the world is speaking. He cares. He's revealing himself. How are you going to respond? Well, they respond by picking up stones to throw at him. So Jesus has been laboring to give a clear picture of who he is and what he desires and what he's calling them to during this Feast of Tabernacles. He's, if you remember, he's identified as the bread of heaven come down. He's identified himself as the water that ultimately brings life where streams of living water flow from him. He is the light of the world. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And there's all sorts of other identifications that come out even in this record of John's gospel. But rather than accept his words, the Jews struggled to understand and accept his claims and what he claimed or who he claimed to be. Now the Jewish leadership wants to ultimately snuff him out. They want to get rid of him. They want to, uh, we find, they want to ultimately kill him. Why? Because he's putting them to shame. One of the other reasons is he has this incredible following. And, and, and they're, they're losing face because he is constantly answering their challenges. They're trying to catch him, but he answers their, you know, their, their trickery, so to speak. He is constantly stepping up and showing them by virtue of what he says and what he does that he truly is the Son of God. They fear his influence. But the more he spoke, the more they wanted to kill him. And the more that happened, their attitude, this is the leadership, spilled over into the people, and we find them now kind of joining hands together in this dialogue. It it starts out with him and the leadership, but then we find here at the end, it's the Jews. It's, it's, It's all of them. There is this kind of frenzied attitude toward Jesus now, Um, even though along the way, we find out that there are those who are saying that they believe. So why would they want to smash in or snuff out the light of the world right there in the temple at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. I just thought about that image. I, and you know, I, I just thought about what, what happens when people are upset and they are acting violently and they are um, you know, kind of in this mob frenzy. If that may be what's going on here, you know, I just thought about those times when, you know, for example, you know, remember about a year ago, there was this kind of Occupy thing going on, and how were people responding? And I'm not talking about the tent village, I'm talking about the protests. Was there an honor for property? Was there this respect for, for things that the government had already established in building certain things? What, what happens when there's a riot is people want to destroy things. And one of the things they destroy are things like windows and lamps that are on light posts and that kind of stuff. I remember when I, was a, uh, when I was a teenager, you know, one of the things that young people did is they would throw rocks at something that would smash. All right? 
don't, don't tell me you were never even thinking along those lines, okay? And one of those things that smashes that happens to be out there in a good kind of reaching distance is a lamplight, right? Street light out there. I just thought about that image and just kind of read this verse of scripture that tells us that they picked up stones to throw at him, but they're throwing their stones ultimately in that image at the light of the world, the light that is shining in this temple. They want to destroy the light. They want to snuff out the light. That's the idea and the picture here. Now, John gives us a little window into what's going on in their hearts. So go back to John chapter 1 and verse 1 and follow. We're just going to work our way through a couple of different passages here to just set the stage as to why this is happening. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that's, that's a statement of truth. It's also a statement of promise. The light shines. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, jump down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here's the light. He comes to his own people because he cares about his people. He's committed to his people. He reveals the light and the truth to his people, but his own people reject him. And we find out in this passage they're throwing stones, or at least ready to at him as the light. Now, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 19. This is, you know, all part of this born-again regeneration passage where Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, but verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And Jesus has clearly, if you've been with us during this discourse, been the light shining on the blindness or the darkness of the Jews, and they do not like what they're hearing. If you remember, in the last paragraph, they said, ah, oh, we have Abraham as our father, and Jesus challenges them with that. And they say, okay, well then, you know, Yahweh's our father, and Jesus challenges them with that. And he says, no, actually, you are of your father, the devil. So they don't like that. And the response they give is what we begin with now in this particular text of Scripture. Look at John chapter 7 now, verses 7 and 8. Again, Jesus is speaking to his brothers, and this is as the, the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, is drawing nigh. It's either beginning or it's just about ready to. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, Jesus says to his brothers, because I testify about it that it, its works are evil. So here we have Jesus clearly understanding what the world's attitude is toward him, what the, the Jews' attitude is toward him. He understands that he is the light. He's going to be shining, but that light is not going to be received by the Jews, by and large. There will be some believers along the way, but by and large, the, the Jews are going to reject him. So here we have the Jews at the end of this Feast of Tabernacles arguing with Jesus about his claims and the, this final paragraph. And in this final paragraph, we have what I'm calling three stones. Three stones thrown in attempt to snuff out the light. And I'm just using that image to kind of help us see that, that the, the, the Jews are, are still throwing things. And we could actually say along this passage that there's been all sorts of stones they've been throwing. And those stones are, are figurative here by virtue of their actions. There's a symmetry of three that, um, that we find in this, in this text. There are three stones that I'm 
going to identify in just a minute, okay? There are three responses that Jesus gives to those stones, and then finally, there are three promises. So you'll see as we go through this passage, there's going to be, here's a stone that is thrown, there's going to be a way that Jesus responds to that, and then at the end, there are going to be a a promise, two of them very, very clear. And the, the two promises that are very, very clear are where Jesus says, truly, truly, boom. The other one is, is implied, and we'll see that unfolded um, as, we, as we work through this, this text together, okay? Now, here ultimately is where I'm going. This is, might want to say, my proposition for this morning, but we're going to go at it through the structure of the text. Because Jesus is the great I am, the true disciple can be confident in three very important practical truths. And we'll see those truths unfold as we see the story uh, unfold through the, the throwing of the stones and the response and ultimately the promises. So hold off and you'll, you'll catch those as we go along. But ultimately there are three practical, driving, beautiful, wonderful truths that help us as true believers to, to pursue and to live our lives for the glory of God, having stood firmly on what Jesus has revealed and clearly evident of the fact that we have believed, not superficially, but truly, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, let's just talk about the three stones. I want to give you the structure just to help you along the way here, okay? The first stone is this, the stone of insult, the stone of insult. And this is how they speak to Jesus and what they identify him as. The second one is the stone of ignorance. Stone of ignorance. You say, well, how can that be a stone? Well, I'll explain that in a little bit. And the last one here um, is the stone of irrationality. Again, when we get there, it'll make sense. But I want to at least get this out there for you so you can begin thinking as we're going through and just identify these three different stones. Insult, ignorance, irrationality. Okay? So let's just pause right now because I really think this is a difficult passage of Scripture, and I just would ask that, that you pray as I am praying for me, that God would use this, that he would just have freedom to speak through me, the messenger, and uh, that uh, God would just seal in us the, the, the realities and the truths that he wants us to glean from this text of Scripture, okay? Lord, would you, would you allow your servant today, Lord, not to trust in his own skill, but Lord, to trust in your Holy Spirit's activity at work through this, this time of, of proclaiming your word, Lord. This is your truth. This is what you desire for your people to hear. And uh, Lord, you have in your sovereign plan recorded this for us by the, 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 the pen of, of John. And Lord, you desire for us to work through this. So Lord, help us to fight, to glean the nuggets, Lord, that you want us to grow by. Lord, as, you do, as we do that, Lord, would you convict us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us, Lord? Help us to be humble before you today. And Lord, to see that you are at work revealing yourself again. But Lord, not only revealing yourself, but giving us an entryway into understanding how you desire for us to live for your glory. So Lord, we ask for your help in your precious name. Amen. The stone of insult, the stone of insult. Now, remember that Jesus has just confronted the Jews who think that because of their spirit, their, their physical ancestry to Abraham, that their relationship with God the Father is perfectly fine, it's healthy. But Jesus makes it very clear that although they are physical descendants, and there's something to be admired about that, um, of Abraham, they are not spiritual descendants. There's a huge significance between being physically a descendant and a spiritual descendant. And the reason it's clear that they're not spiritual descendants is because they did not do the works that Abraham did. And so if you remember, they said, okay, well then if that's, you know, they didn't respond necessarily. They said, okay, well let's talk about God the Father. You know, we'll certainly rally around God the Father. He's our Father. And Jesus says, well, actually, um, if you would do the works that would show that you are, you know, have him as your father, then it would be clear that he would be your father, but you don't love me, you don't listen to me, and since I'm sent from the father, then clearly you're not loving what he loves and listening to what he is doing, and your works again prove that that's not true. 
So rather than listen and be humble before God um, and his messenger, who would be Jesus at that point in time, they come back with a vile insult. And this is where we, we jump into this, this stone of insult. He says, or they say here, the, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, maybe at face value, that doesn't seem that significant. But when, when you're kind of backed into a corner in an argument, which I know you've never been, um, and uh, maybe you're at a time when, when you've, you know, you've thrown all your, your ammo out there, and you know, it's, it's all out there, it's all gone, there's some last resort stuff that kind of comes out. And oftentimes what happens with the last resort stuff is you start throwing insults. And they're not necessarily truly founded on anything that would be accurate. They are insults. In fact, that's what makes them so insulting is there's no foundation to them whatsoever. And, and the insult they give here, um, in particular, the Samaritan insult um, is an attack on three levels. It's an attack on a racial level because they were a mixed breed. You go back in the history of Israel, uh, when the Assyrians took over, the Assyrians didn't necessarily take people away. They, their, their idea was we will integrate them into who we are. So you had this group of people that were Jews ethnically but intermarried, carried some of the, the religious idea and the cultural idea, but when, when the, the Jews came back from exile back into their territory, back to Jerusalem, um, there was this divide between the Samaritans and the Jews because the Jews would not recognize them as their own people. They were considered, you know, they were considered to be um, non-Jews and have violated their Jewish status. And so there was this racial thing that was going on. It's far greater maybe than the time that we have this morning, but there was also a political side of it. They, they did not, because of their relationship and their their they might want to say racial status, they did not consider that they would be supporting true Israel. It wasn't true Israel, it was kind of a conglomeration. So it's a racial level, there's a political level, there's also a theological level because if you remember the story, you know, we worship God in Jerusalem, and, or sorry, you, you worship God in Jerusalem, the woman at well says, and she says, but we worship him at Gerizim. There was a, there was a, a similar but different theological mindset among them. So, so to Say that Jesus is, is a Samaritan in the context, the Jewish context, is to really say that you are a dog, you are the worst of the worst, you are someone who has abandoned the true calling of honoring and worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh. Now we know that that is not true about Jesus. We know that Jesus had as his desire every every moment, every opportunity to do the will of his Father. He says to them, I'm not saying what I want to say, I'm only saying what the Father has told me to say. And over and over again in this discourse, he's referring back to that, but they choose to ignore it anyway. And they call him a Samaritan. We know that Jesus was orthodox. We know that he only had the salvation of Israel in his heart. That's what's behind all that he is saying. So none of it was true, and that's what makes this such an insult, right? When you know the facts are not true, um, it certainly is that much more insulting. The second thing is, you know, you have a demon. Now, we went back last week, if you remember, we, you know, Jesus said, no, you are of your father, the devil. We talked about this playground antics, and they kind of turn around and say, well, okay, then, then, you know, then, you know, you have a demon. You know, no, you have, you know, that kind of a thing going on. I mean, there's, 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 this is what happens. You stop thinking. You just, you start shooting from, you might want to say, spiritual, non-spiritual, fleshly hip, throwing these things out. And, and so here we have these insults that are being hurled now at Jesus, rather than kind of logically thinking and humbly receiving what is being said and considering it and connecting it, they're blind, they're dark, in darkness, they do not want to listen to what he has to say. So, and here's kind of where we, we, we make the next step. That's the stone that's been thrown. So Jesus now um, responds to the stone of insult by saying, I honor the Father and I promise the true disciple that he will never see Death. I'm just trying to summarize now what's going on in this response, and then there's a promise. There's a response, and there's a promise. So here we have it in a nutshell. To the stone of insult, Jesus says, I honor the Father, 
and promise the true disciple that he will never see death. So let's look at Jesus' response here, from dishonor to honor. Verse 59, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Notice he doesn't even pay attention to the Samaritan question. Doesn't even touch on it, doesn't even mention it, doesn't even acknowledge it. But he does identify this whole this, this attack on him having a demon. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. H- how has he been reinforcing who he really is along this whole discourse? I honor my father. I honor my father. I do his will. I listen to what he says. You know, repeated, repeated, repeated. Verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So, like I said, he doesn't entertain anything about being a accused of being a Samaritan, but he does deny the fact he's demon-possessed. He simply says, I honor my father. Now, he stresses that he is not seeking any self-glory, any, I want to say, sinful self-glory, any, you know, I'm really in this for me kind of attitude. And I think it's really interesting, and I think it's important for us to recognize this relationship that the son has with the father. The glory is for the Godhead. The glory in, in the relationship is seen as it is the Father who is glorifying the Son. So ultimately, Jesus is saying, listen, I have a judge. I have one who is going to glorify or is seeking my glory. I'm not the one who is doing that. In other words, what other people think about what Jesus is doing is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is that God the Father thinks that it's the right thing and finds glory in his son. Now, we only need to read a few passages of the Old Testament to see what Jesus is saying is true. So just either listen or kind of flip back to uh, a few of these passages. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this, the Lord says to my Lord, right, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. God the Father, here in the picture, honoring God the Son. Right? Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant, God says, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Again, Yahweh talking about his servant. We know the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Uh, actually, verse chapter 40 through uh, the 50s there, the suffering servant is a picture and is talking about Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a Christmas passage, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, his reputation, all right, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is all coming from the Father talking about the Son, It is the father desiring to to glorify his son or to bring glory to his son. It's not the son trying to fight for self-glory. It is all part of this Godhead working its wonderful plan. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am not coming to do my my own will, to do my own thing. I am coming as part of this plan where the father is seeking and he's the only one that actually is, is receiving glory. And he finds glory in me doing what I am doing. Now, friends, it's, it's worth us just kind of stepping back and, and thinking a little bit practically for ourselves here. Do I seek glory for myself? Ask yourself that question. What does the Proverbs say? Let another man praise you. Do I seek glory for myself? Is it all about me? Do I expect the world to spin on its axis around my life, around my desires, around my beliefs. Now, either you're coming into your mind right now or someone else is, right? You're thinking of people that that's how they function. But Jesus here shows us that there's only one audience that really matters. And guys, please hear this. God has called me to be a pastor teacher. And I am constantly thinking about you guys when I'm preparing a message. And even when I'm a message. But in the big picture of things, there's really only one audience that matters to me, and that is God who's looking down, whom I am desiring to praise and worship through the ministry of preaching. 
That doesn't mean I don't care what you think. I do. But what really matters is what he thinks. And what Jesus is saying is what really matters is what he thinks. And that should be our attitude also, that he is the one who ultimately is the judge to determine whether or not glory should be given or identified in the person who is being faithful to what he is calling them to do. That's Jesus' response. Now let's look at Jesus' promise, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Truly, truly, whenever you find that in the Gospels, you know, it should cause you to, to pause and say, there's something really important that's just about to be said. And Jesus now is going to say something that's really important. That's what he does. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So let's just think about that expression, keeps my word. It has the same idea as listening to his word, as abiding in his word. And Jesus has been given his, his teaching. He's been, he's been just unfolding there in the temple. If you remember in the early part of the, of the story here, Day by day, he would go to the temple during this Feast of Tabernacles, and he would be teaching the people that were there. The question is whether or not those that are listening are going to abide, remain in, continue with him, if they are going to keep his word. If they will, something is going to take place. That's what it says. If you keep my word, that person will never see death. Now, let's go to 2 John, a little letter that John writes. He fleshes out some of these same themes, and I think it's important to connect uh, what's going on in 2 John, in particular verses 9 and following, to see how important it is what Jesus is saying here in this interaction with the Jews. 2 John, verses 9 through 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Is that pretty plain? Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So, it's not there in the Greek, but I'm putting it in there because logic would flow this way, right? So, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whomever greets him, takes part in his wicked works. Remaining in Christ's teaching, remaining in and, and continuing in and actually absorbing it and keeping his word is all part of what is necessarily to truly recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and that, that Yahweh is truly who he is. Now, this has been reinforced and reinforced. This is one of those themes that has just come up again. You know, remember last time Jesus says, why don't you understand? And he does give an answer there. You know, your, your hearts are hardened. You do not want to receive. You do not want to acknowledge. You ultimately want to do your own works, evil works. So those who don't abide don't have the Father and the Son. But the promise is this. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. He will never see death. Friends, there are two kinds of death. There's physical death, and more than likely, all of us are gonna see that unless you believe you know, the Lord raptures his church and you're gonna be caught up together with him, right? You're, you're, we're all going to experience that physical death, but there's a spiritual death. Now, the reality is, friends, before Christ, you were already dead, right? But there is an eternal death it's a spiritual death. It's a spiritual separation from God that will be an eternal separation, an eternal death. And you and I who've embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who would call ourselves true disciples, we will not see that death. We have been given life instead of that death. Now, John calls it eternal life. He calls it abundant life. So here is the ultimate promise. Here is the principle. Here is the first, I think, driving application that, that uh, God would have us think through, and that is a true disciple is alive. I want you to think about this. This, this, this theme of honor. Were the Jews honoring Jesus by their, their insult? What's the answer? No. And Jesus says, 
in response, I honor the Father. You don't honor me, but I honor the Father. And ultimately, I honor those who will listen to my word with granting new life. Now friends, I know you know this, but just remember what your life was like before Christ came. Caught up in sin, entangled in sin, hopeless, lost, in darkness, wandering, an alien, an enemy. All these words are used to describe who you were before Christ. But when you stepped through the threshold of the cross, you embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, you took onto yourself the, the, all the implications of the gospel. At that moment when God breathed into your life, he regenerated you, he gave you new life which means that your senses opened up, your spiritual senses opened up. You began to see things that you didn't see before. You began to understand things by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in ways that you didn't understand before. You began to look at life and touch it and feel it and smell it and and hear it and all this kind of stuff was there because you are a new creature created in Christ Jesus and, and that is all because of what he has done. You are no longer dead, you are alive. And if we are alive, then we need to live. And we're alive because we can live because we have been liberated from death to a place called life. And that only, that, that, that life that we have now is the result of him. It's rooted in the gospel. It begins with the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. It continues on. Now friends, let me just encourage you. Sometimes we get so caught up with our regular routines and, and, and kind of life is just kind of hard. But you, if you're a child of God, have been blessed with the spiritual acumen that comes by being recreated, reborn afresh in Christ and your senses have been alerted and you now can go through difficulties and struggles and see life in a completely different way because you are a child of God. That comes as a result of keeping his word, of abiding in his word, of listening to what he has to say. And ultimately that's referring to the gospel, but it doesn't stop at the gospel, it continues on. This past weekend, um, for whatever reason, um, our family um, was watching The Biggest Loser. We just were. And it was uh, just, just, you know, it's like, ah, let's watch that, okay, fine. So we're watching The Biggest Loser here, right? And um, if you don't know the show, it's a competition where people who are um, struggling with their weight um, are invited on the show. It's a competition type thing, and over the course of a period of time, they are working out and changing their diet, and they seek to compete with each other based on how much weight they lose and percentages and all that kind of stuff, okay? And all along in this, this show, all the participants are shown struggling, sweating, crying, vomiting, trying to lose weight so that they can have a new lease on life. All this work, all this effort, all this time, all this struggle. But friends, new life in Christ does not come from us having to work hard and labor and cry and vomit all those things. It comes from struggle and suffering. It comes from Jesus Christ going to a cross and paying for our sin. And then he turns around and he grants that new life to us. So we're not the biggest losers, we're the biggest winners. Spiritually speaking, that is who we are in Christ. I just just sometimes wonder sometimes, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. Listen, you have new life. So live. You're alive. And there are people wandering this earth today. There are people that are living in your neighborhoods that are dead. And so be thankful and take advantage of the life that you have in him. Now, that being true, let's move to the next stone, the stone of ignorance. The stone of ignorance. The light has been shining bright into the darkness all along this discourse, in fact, all throughout this gospel. But darkness does not comprehend it, Darkness is blind to it. Of course, that darkness would be referring to the Jews who don't want to listen and don't want to believe. But we see next here the stone of ignorance. Look at verse 52 and following. The Jews said to him, we know that you have a demon. 
Abraham died, and as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, I'm, I'm just always partially frustrated and amused at how the Jews respond to Jesus. He, I mean, he, he pours himself out, he lays clearly out, logically, and, and, and clearly who he is, what he desires, why he's there, why he's saying what he's saying, and they respond by saying, huh? Well, we know. We know. Now, not everyone that says we know actually really knows. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the one that knows here. The Jews here are saying, we know. We know that you have a demon. Question, step back. Does Jesus have a demon? No. Has he said, I don't have a demon? Yes. Has he explained why? Yes. I mean, he's laid it all out. All they hear is, you said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Well, how can that be? Abraham, he died. The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Again, you know, I don't know if there was a proverbial brick wall that Jesus could go and bang his head against in one sense because he has answered that question over and over and over again. But this is what happens in darkness and blindness is they, they can't see it. And part of the purpose here is for Jesus to not only share all those things and say all those things to reveal their blindness, but it's also for us who are reading this gospel to recognize that we also may continue to be blind even when all this data, all this evidence is laid before us. And it may be explained, it may be sealed, it may be clear, but we, <laughs> we don't see the evidence for what it really is. We get sidetracked, and I think what's happening here is they get transfixed with this word death and can only see it through a physical lens. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Are you greater than the prophets who also died? Who do you think you are? Now, to that stone of ignorance. Um, this is how Jesus responds. I know the Father and promise the true disciple joy and gladness. And we'll connect the dots there in just a minute here. Let's look at the, the, this Jesus' response here. They say, we know. We know the truth. And Jesus says, um, you know what? I know the Father. I know. Your Father God and your father Abraham are brought up now um, as, as part of a resource that they're using against Jesus. But remember, he says, you are of your father the devil. So notice Jesus' answer in verse 54 and follow, following. And notice how many times the word no is mentioned here. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. He's just repeating what he just said a couple minutes ago. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, Jesus speaks directly to them, but there's something that's going on here that is not clearly evident in the English language. And I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it's a nuance that is helpful, maybe at least to, to see a distinction here about the knowledge of the Jews and the knowledge of Jesus. And that is that the word know, we find in the English language, actually comes from two different Greek words. The first one here we find in verse 55, but you have not known him, is the Greek word ginosko, and we've talked about that. That is the knowledge that comes as a result of some kind of experience. It's not a bad knowledge. It has its place. It's a good knowledge. And the way we've looked at it is a good thing. But the word that we find after that, where, where Jesus says, I know him, talking about the Father, and if I were to say that I do not know him, again, that word know there, and that I would be a liar uh, like you, but I do know him is a different word, and it's the Greek word oida, O-I-D-A. Not loida, but oida, Okay which has the idea of inherent knowledge. 
In other words, it's not a knowledge that I have to experience in order to understand that it is true. It is a knowledge that is resident within me. I know. In other words, think of Jesus here. We're talking about you know, Jesus, the light of the world. Just think of Jesus being this lamp, this light. Now, we would normally go, you know, we go to Ikea, and we see all these lamps laid out, and does it work? How do I know it works? Well, turn it on. Click. It, it's not turning on. What do I do? I have to find whether there's a plug, and if the plug is plugged in, right? Plugged in, turned on, light comes on. With Jesus, though, there is no cord, there's no plug. He is the light of the world. His knowledge is inherent. Although in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, there is this intimacy with the Godhead. His knowledge of the Father is not dependent on his experience. His knowledge of God and what God desires is based on who he is as God. It is inherent. Okay. Now, I will say this. Both of these words are used interchangeably, but I do think it's important for us to know that any knowledge that we have is only the result of experiential knowledge. Reading, studying, gleaning, being taught. Jesus does not have to plug in to anything. He is who he is. Now, notice his promise then. Verse 30, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now here's the connection for us in this passage here. They claimed knowledge. And Jesus said, you don't know. I know the Father, and then he talks about this knowledge is inherent in me. But Abraham now is brought up. Abraham was given evidence by God the Father, and we, he believed. We looked at that a little bit last week. I'm going to remind you of it this week. Um, chapter 15 of, of Genesis and verse 6, God had given him a promise that he was going to, out of Abraham and Sarah, that he was going to... Um, he was going to provide all these nations. And Abraham took what God said, even though it seemed impossible, and he believed. And it, we're told there, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we need to kind of fast forward. And what this verse is saying, he knew and believed what God said. So he believed God's promise, and he did it with joy and gladness. That's ultimately what's being said here in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced, there's the joy, that he would see my day he saw ahead and saw what Jesus was going to do. He saw it and was glad. So let's go to the book of Hebrews where this is explained a little further. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. You know this passage, I'm sure, very well. And this is the hall of faith. But we have in this hall of faith the story of Abraham and what was going on with him. And by faith, we're told in verse 8, Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So he knew the promise, but he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to a day. He was looking forward to a building. He was looking forward to a promise being fulfilled. Jump down to verse 12. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. So there's the, the, there's the, the, you know, the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 13. These all died what? In faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, having read that, go back to this little statement that Jesus makes with the Jews. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What was it that Abraham saw? He saw the promise being fulfilled. He saw ultimately that Jesus' day, now there's a lot of debate as to exactly what it's talking about. Is that Jesus speaking where he is right now? Is that him on the cross? Is that ultimately the eschatological day? We don't really exactly know, okay? But we know that he had a future prophetical look and he was looking to that day. And because he was functioning by faith, chapter 11 of Hebrews, 
he was able to look ahead at those promises, rejoice and be glad. So, what's going on here is this. Abraham, although he didn't get this information because he was inherently the one having the knowledge, he was receiving that information from, from God, now was able to live his life with knowledge that was full but incomplete and a promise. And that was sufficient knowledge for him to have faith in his God and to have ultimately joy and gladness even though he was striving for something that he did not know specifically ultimately what it was going to look like, but he did it gladly because he was functioning based on what God said. Now friends, here's the, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. Ignorance brushes aside the deep-rooted benefits of the child of God. It cannot comprehend what real joy is. It cannot understand what it means to be glad. It cannot grasp what dying in faith and not receiving the promise looks like. But the kind of goodness and joy that Abraham experienced was based on a promise, like I said, one he hadn't realized yet, one that he was confident in, but it drove him to act and behave in a manner quite contrary to those who don't believe. So not only does the true disciple, or is that true disciple alive, that true disciple is glad. Now, let me kind of flesh this out a little bit more. We talked about this new disciple, this true disciple has life, but life is not simply the entry place into your walk with God. Life is something that continues on. And Abraham is an example of one who believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Boom, that's his position with Christ. But now, chapter 11, his life is an example of one who is living by faith. There's a life that's being lived now by faith in the promises of God. And there's a picture there for us of our walk with him. There's a picture there of, of our walk that is saying, we don't know what the future is, but we know that this is the direction based on promises, based on truths, that we must go and I must listen to God the Father and God the Son and how the Holy Spirit's working in my life through his word. I'm listening, I'm trusting, and I'm doing it with joy and I'm doing it with gladness. And that doesn't happen simply because I made the choice to do that. I'm gonna be glad today. That is the result of the cross. That is the result of the gospel. That is the result of all the implications and the promises and the things that happen in new life being applied now to my walk with him. But those who are in darkness, they don't even understand it. They're ignorant. But we who know him, know him, maybe not fully, but we know enough to say this is where he wants us to go. And we do it with joy and gladness. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is true, friends, when life is good, when life is difficult, when, when we're struggling. We long for his return. We rejoice in the prospect of being with him in heaven. Scripture tells us that we groan to be at home with him. But we also rejoice in the certainty of his plan we are glad even in the face of difficulties and trials because they're all for his glory. And I just want to root all that in this passage of scripture, 1 Peter 1, verses three through seven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you what? Rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing or the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just passages laying out all that I was just telling you. This life is rooted in the gospel, it's rooted in what Jesus Christ has done, but it's a life that is living because it is also rooted in the hope of eternity. So you got this, 
this, this, this gospel that's pushing us on one side and you have the certainty of heaven and the promises of God pulling us on the other side. And we are there pursuing Christ's likeness in the midst of it. So, that's the second stone. The third stone is irrationality. When the Jews are at the end of their rope, when they've attempted to discredit, arrest, kill Jesus, when they turn to insults and claim to know the truth, when all their thoughts and arguments are confronted and corrected by Jesus, when their connection to their spiritual, ancestral hero is undone, then truth, logic, and reasonable questions are all off the table, and rational irrationality takes place. When I say rational irrationality, I'm saying it sounds rational to them, but it's irrational. You ever listen to someone actually think that they're being rational, and you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm not saying because you're ignorant. I'm just saying it's like that, that doesn't make any sense. Now, just, just think about the statement here um, that, that we're seeing, because Jesus has been given evidence, explanation, illustration, warning, followed by evidence, explanation, illustration, warning throughout this whole interaction. They don't believe Jesus' word. They don't believe what's being revealed. They only can discern a literalness from what he's saying. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, after all this, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? (laughs) Where did that come from? They took his words, they, they twisted his words. Jesus was never claiming to have seen Abraham, although we know theologically that he did because he was in the beginning with God. What did he say? That Abraham would see my day. Who's doing the seeing? Abraham was doing the seeing. He saw it was glad, we're told. But they took his words, twisted them, and challenged Jesus that he was too young to have ever known Abraham. So what? what? <laughs> I I never even said that. That's not even the direction of our conversation. You're missing the point, and you have no clue. Your thinking is irrational. So Jesus responds, and here's what we have in his response. He responds to the stone of irrationality by saying, I am equal with the Father and promises true disciples satisfaction in him. Let's just work through that and think through that. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they, pan- oh, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Before Abraham was, I am. Dick Lucas, who's a teacher in England that I, I really respect and, and appreciate, he's a pastor of a church, um, St. Helens and Bishopsgate, just a guy I really respect, he said this, that this is one of the most irrational states in the Bible, statements in the Bible. In other words, no human author would write that Jesus would say before Abraham was, I am. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. If you're an English teacher, you don't like it because the tense is all wrong. We would be comfortable if Jesus said before Abraham was what? I was. In other words, I existed before him. But that's not what Jesus says. This this seems to be irrational, but it's not. (laughs) It's a very, very divinely rational statement that has significant implications in us understanding who he is. And once again, Jesus, by the statement, is declaring himself to be equal with God. He is saying, before Abraham was, not I was, but before Abraham was, was I am. In other words, I am the eternally existing one. And of course, this is a reference back to Moses' encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush, with God at the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am 
has sent me to you. Now, that doesn't fit with our English language. But the Jews would understand the implication of Jesus saying, I am. And so when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, those who were listening to him clearly understood his claim to be equal with God and the actual punishment for blasphemy, for speaking against God, for identifying yourself with God would be stoning. So they're grabbing stones. Now, I have to imagine, where did they get these stones from? It's a question I have. I don't know. I don't think they had little stoning stalls necessary. You can go up and buy them and that kind of stuff. But they all reached and found stones because they were so incensed. They were responding to what Jesus said. They didn't like the fact that he was identifying himself as being equal with God. But it's nothing new. He has said this over and over and over and over and over and over again. but they throw stones. Now here's, they're getting ready to at least. Here's the promise that we're given. Jesus is using this I am formula once again and he's identifying himself like he did with other statements with, the, with himself being the one that is the source ultimately of satisfaction. When Jesus says I am the bread of life, what is he saying? I'm the only one that can satisfy your hunger. When I, he says, I am the one from whom the rivers of living water will flow, what is he saying? I'm the only one that can satisfy your thirst. When he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I'm the only light. But these are all statements by, that are saying, listen, it, the only solution, the only satisfaction that you can have is found in me. And so not only are true believers alive, not only true believers glad, but true believers truly can be satisfied and are satisfied with the great God of the universe, Jesus himself, who is, who is the great I am. But it's not just his satisfying dynamic. I think at the end here when it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself went out of the temple. It's, just a, it's screaming from this text that not only is he the one that provides satisfaction, but he ultimately is sovereign. I mean, you have these people standing to throw stones at you, and it just tells us there that he went out of the temple. Just, I'm going to leave, slip away. Uh, what if people were standing around wanting to throw stones at you? All right, see you guys, time to leave. No, it would be, a, you know, it's a video moment, right? So you're running all over the place, dodging it, not Jesus. Totally and completely sovereign in control. His time had not come yet. He is aware of his plan. This is all part of his purposes. I want to leave you um, with this one statement, a very, very well-known statement by C.S. Lewis, and I think it, it's so appropriate for this text of Scripture. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God that is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would, be, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg. And if you don't know what a poached egg is, I'll talk to you afterwards. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, chapter seven and eight does not reveal Jesus being a good human teacher. It reveals Jesus over and over declaring himself to be the son of God, to be very God himself. How are we going to respond to that? Now friends, if you're a child of God, respond by, by re revisiting the fact that you are alive and what that means. 
by revisiting the fact that there is gladness in this walk that we have, even though there are trials. And revisit the fact that your satisfaction can only be found in him. And so once again, fight yourself and put yourself in the place where you're leaning on him totally and completely. And that's part of the reason why we have been commanded to celebrate the Lord's table. Because we need, this, we need this, this move back again to the center, so to speak. This move back again to the gospel. This move back again to the, the reason why we call ourselves God's children is because of what God did in his ultimate plan by sending his son to a cross who hung there and died in our place so that we could be forgiven, have our sins paid for, and have life. And life is abundant, full of joy, and fully satisfied. And Lord, help us today as we now consider what we have just studied together. Would you strengthen us, Lord, now as we allow your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts? Lord, I ask if there is, is sin or if there are things that need to be sorted out in our lives, Lord, that we can resolve them. If there's a person here we need to talk to, if there's some conflict that needs to be adjusted, Lord, would you help us to, to be humble enough, to be obedient enough, Lord, to take care of that? Secondly, Lord, if there are sinful struggles that we right now desire to repent of and to confess, Lord, we need this time. We need to come and celebrate this Lord's table. We need to be reminded of the gospel and what you have done for us. So, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you help us? Would you, would you allow this time to be a time um, to be reminded, Lord, of the power of the gospel in our lives? And I would say to those who are here today who may not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Um, the Lord's Supper is not something.